Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Victoria Morgan-Smith and Sarah Wells. Based in London, Victoria is Director of Delivery for Internal Products at the Financial Times. Before taking on team-leading roles at the FT, she was a developer for a few years, an experience which informs her current leadership role. Also based in London, Sarah is Technical Director for Operations and Reliability at the FT, where she leads a team that brings together existing delivery enablement and first-line support teams. Victoria is co-author of the LeanPub book, Internal Tech Conferences, How to Accelerate Multi-Team Learning Across Departments. In this interview, in addition to talking about Victoria's book, we're also going to talk about Victoria and Sarah's own paths to working on the IT side of a major news organization and some of the work they've seen and done within the FT during their time there. I'd like to add that I've really been looking forward to this interview. I I think those of us with an interest in, in interest in journalism and tech often hear about things naturally enough uh, from the point of view of journalists and readers, and I think it's going to be really interesting for our listeners to get to hear about things from the perspective of people who made their way to working on the tech itself. So thank you, uh, Victoria and Sarah, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Hello, thank you. Thanks. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I sort of call their origin story. Uh, Victoria, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in uh, technology and the web. Okay. Um well, I originally grew up in, in Cumbria in the north of England, which seemed and I guess was miles away from many big cities. So business and tech was uh, a long way from my radar. So my early ambitions at that point were to do teaching, um, something you can relate to pretty much anywhere you come from. Um, I wasn't ready to commit to teaching, so I did a degree in English literature instead so that I could do some post-grad teacher training and test my theory while I was studying that as to whether or not I could teach, and which was a good thing I did because I realized that children in groups of more than two terrified me. So uh, then I had to do a quick switch. And um, so ultimately really what happened was I stumbled into technology because working out what I wanted to do next, I then did a master's in computing to learn a bit about uh, essentially how to use a computer and how to do smart things with it while I worked out what I wanted to do. And during that time discovered that this coding stuff was actually quite good fun and I quite liked it and I was quite good at it. And, and lo, that was it really. That's how I ended up finding a job doing development and a complete accident in the end, but I enjoyed it. Um, as a recovering English major myself, I, I, I wrote a, I wrote a DPhil in English um, uh, and then went into investment banking in London uh, for, for a few years. Uh, so I have my own experience of coming from, you know, something that people often think isn't really very sort of applicable to something else and, and finding it very much was. Did you, did you find that your background in English helped inform your, your work that you did uh, later? I would say not particularly, but um, having taken time to, I suppose my intro, early interest in teaching did help. Because when I then went from, uh, from doing coding to other things, the idea of, uh, of, of education and, and bringing people together, that helped in my later, degree, later career. But in terms of programming, did my English degree help? The degree of learning to study and how to apply yourself and, and, and analyze and think, all of that probably helped, but I, I, I don't necessarily see a huge number of parallels between the two. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, I can see from your profile online that you worked for a few years as a developer, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, before becoming a scrum master uh, at one point. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, uh, for those listening who might not know, about 
how that switch in roles care about came about from being a developer to being a scrum master and a team leader and a little bit about what a scrum master does. Oh, um, so yes, I, I did enjoy being a developer at the time. Um, but what, while I was doing that, I was always interested in the conversations beyond the code. So I was always interested in, in how we work, how, how we engage with customers and the way team members could collaborate to solve problems. So it, it was that connection piece. Um, and pre-Agile, I'd looked at with horror at a project manager role, which seemed to be that awful stuck in the middle bit where the client would get grumpy with them for the project being late and the team would get grumpy with them for making promises on their behalf. Um, and so then when I came to the Financial Times and discovered Agile, that's when I also discovered the Scrum Master role, which is quite different. It's got parallels to uh, project management, but it's quite different because the focus is more about helping the team to plan and coordinate their activities. So it's a supporting role. Those plans and activities are owned by the team, but the Scrum Master is there to provide some structure, to help them think, to reflect, to encourage good practices and it's much more about um, it, it helping others figure out how to achieve what they need to and, and be the best they can. And, and, and that is what appealed so much more to me than, than the, the project manager who makes all the plans. And, and so really, while I was doing development in inner team, during that time, I'd shown a, a natural bent towards bringing people together. So it was a fairly a relatively natural Thing that happened here it's, it's a type of company where you get the opportunity to try things so I had a secondment and that worked out and so you know when an actual role became available that I could apply and then there there were there the switch happened and what's the difference between let's say what we I mean it's now getting a little bit old but like a sort of conventional waterfall product project managers relationship between kind of management and executives and the relationship that a scrum master might have with that with that side of things and someone working in the agile framework. Yeah, it's a, it's a different type of accountability. So as a, as, a, as a project manager, they would often feel that um, they're the one who are accountable for making sure this thing gets delivered on time to budget and, and ticks all the boxes. You've got a plan, you've worked out what you're gonna do and the focus is on tick, 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 those things have delivered regardless of what you may or may not learn along the way. So your focus and your attention is all about pushing and can we get this done faster and it's just about doing that thing um, whereas the scrum master role is often is, is much more about um, this may be setting some expectations but helping those conversations go about what are we trying to achieve we're going to form some plans together um, those plans may change and it's a different level of commitment and it's enabling those ongoing continuous conversations between the engineering team and the business and management and trying to bring them closer together so that the conversations are, um, evolve and the plans evolve um, as you learn and as you may, uh, you may pivot. And it's, it's a slightly more healthy and open conversations than when you feel as if your head's on the block because everyone's looking to you to make it all just happen and get done. Uh, and yeah, just one last question before we move on to hearing Sarah's story. Um, Victoria, was uh, was the FT sort of ahead of the curve with respect to this type of management style or this kind of uh, technology development style? I, sus 
Well, I suspect so. I mean, I joined, I've been here 15, 14 years. And so when I first came here, they were, at least, they were talking about Agile, which many organizations weren't. They were trying to implement it and they had a long way to go. There were many, many things that weren't fantastic, but they were trying and they'd heard of it. And it was a thing that we were, uh, the company was trying to, to shift into. So I think probably in, in many, uh, compared to many organizations, they probably were. Thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, uh, Sarah, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, about your own background. I believe uh, you have a background in, in publishing, actually, before you got into tech uh, and how you became interested ultimately in software development and, and technology. Sure. Um, so I didn't ever really have a, a strong view on what I wanted to do. Um, I kind of knew things that I was interested in, but I didn't have a uh, real idea. So I kind of followed things I was interested in. Uh, in terms of subjects. So I went and did um, a degree in natural sciences, realized very quickly that I didn't want to work in a science lab because I went and did it for a summer and ended up doing history and philosophy of science, which is a fantastic, fantastically interesting subject. It's not particularly applicable to many jobs, but I went into science publishing. So I did uh, journal production editing and then book production editing, which is, it's a very organizational job. You do proofreading, copy editing, you're, you're doing all the steps that produce a book. And after about six years, um, I got made redundant, which is a kind of a rite of passage in publishing. It happens a lot. <laughs> and it made me stop and think, do I actually want to carry on doing this? Because actually every book that you publish just is the same set of steps. And I knew how to do that. And I wanted a job that was going to be a different problem that I was solving every time and around this point I, I met someone who was working as a software developer and I thought actually that sounds like something that sounds like something that would give you that problem solving so I went and did a master's um, a conversion course and uh, that was in that was in 99 and I've been working in in software development ever since The next question I have is for both of you, um, and it's a question that comes up often with uh, technical book authors on this podcast, um, uh, and, I, and it, it applies to both of you, which is great, uh, which is um, if you were starting out now with the intention of following a career in, in tech uh, and perhaps in, you know, in software development, would you formally study computer science at university? So Sarah, uh, we started with Victoria's story. Why don't you go first with, with this one? Well, I think it's interesting that you're going to ask Victoria and me this and neither of us formally studied a three-year computer science degree. Like a lot, I, I find a lot of the women that I work with who are not from the latest cohort of people doing things like makers did conversion courses because we basically got to the point of thinking, well, now I want to get a job in IT. Well, I'll go and do a master's. Um, if I was doing that now, I would probably be likely to do something like Makers Academy, something that's very business oriented, quite focused on exactly what you need to know. And I really enjoyed my conversion course, but I would say that it was, it was very much an academic thing where the people who were teaching didn't know the things that we would need to know in the industry. So we weren't learning, you know, I, this is in uh, 98, 99, I was learning C, um, but really you'd have been learning Java if you were, Java or C++ if you were going to be going into the industry at that point. And I think there's a whole bunch of stuff related to that. So I think very focused uh, courses, it's not such a, a big commitment in terms of money or in terms of giving up other things. And they, they teach you how to use source control. They teach you how to do the stuff that actually means you can go into your job and know what you're doing. I would agree, actually, on, on all of those points. Um, 
I'm not sure I would go to, I would have gone to university if, um, and studied if, the, if it cost as much as it costs these days. It is really expensive. Um, and what you learn um, in, a compu- in a computing degree, I do often wonder, as Sarah says, is how relevant a lot of that is. Because technology is changing so much by the time you get to the end of three years, what you were learning in the first year might not be particularly useful. And if I do look back at my lecturers, in, even in my master's, I don't know that any of them had any industry experience. So in terms of their ability to teach and stuff that was meaningful and useful once you're in a career, uh, I would say was limited. So we've had some really good successes of bringing people in from schemes like Makers, where it is, they've, it's short, it's sharp, it's meaningful, and it, it is quite a commitment. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not an easy shortcut. Um, just because it's shorter, it still requires quite a big commitment. Um, but they learn, they really learn stuff that's immediately valuable. And um, I would probably be much more likely to recommend some that sort of scheme. I think it's, uh, it's interesting um, because a lot of the people we've got in through Makers actually did probably do a degree in something else and then they worked for a bit doing something else. I mean, it's a mix. Uh, you gain quite a lot from, you gain quite a lot from what people have learned in their degree and in their work before they, before they do that, I think as well. Yeah, I guess I, I, I wasn't planning on asking this question, but it sounds like you've both been involved in, a, in some hiring. And so what you're, you're, you're suggesting that um, having a computer science degree, whether it's a conversion degree or to, you know, a, a sort of full undergraduate degree actually isn't necessarily a requirement in an organization, in an organization like yours for, for being hired in a development role. It's, it's not, but we work cl- uh, closely with partner organizations for these things. I mean, we, we do have, we have um, apprentice schemes. We have people in on internships. We work very, very closely with Makers Academy who run a 16 week uh, learn to code, you know, learn software development process. Um, so we, we tend to do it through some kind of structured, structured um, setup where the people coming in get support that they would need. You mentioned the uh, expense. Uh, this is a little bit of um, politics and history that we might want to go into for, for a brief moment. Um, I remember when I moved to London from uh, where I was in Canada in 1999, I worked on, on the Aldwych just off the Strand, not, not too far from uh, where the FT is based there. And um, that's right, right amongst the LSE uh, buildings. And um, I remember lots of protests about the impending increase in potential tuition costs because I believe even in 99 it was still free um, uh, to study at universities and at most universities in the UK uh, and then I remember I had a colleague who told me that he had a, a student debt of 5,000 pounds which he which he represented quite naturally as a, 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 a crime against you know justice um, in Canada, we don't have the same problem with tuition that people have in the United States, but still, you know, something like a 5,000 pound debt wouldn't be something that people would regard as onerous. Uh, so it was surprising to me. Um, but uh, in the time since, and it has been 20 years, um, uh, tuition has gone way up in the UK. I forget, was it under, it was probably under camera, and I imagine that, that it really went up. Um, have either of you noticed... Uh, a drop-off in the number of applicants that you have who've formally studied, you know, at, at university 
because of the increase in tuition? And I mean, I'm, I'm asking you to kind of guess here, and this is kind of an anecdotal question, so uh, please take it in that spirit. I'll let Sarah answer, because I, I do less uh, recruitment of technical engineers now. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't think I, we could say, because we generally recruit people um, either, you know, the people we get in that are, that are less experienced, you normally come in with partnerships with other organizations, as I said. So by the time that we're um, interviewing without that kind of partnership, we're looking at their job history. So I, I certainly don't worry too much when I'm looking at a CV um, about educational history. I'm looking for experience and a, a coherent set of a story of what they've been working on more okay okay thanks very much for sharing that that's that's really good uh, good to know um so you've you've both worked for um, a large newspaper during a time of profound transition in the industry and i'd like to ask each of you about one or two of the experiences you've had or projects you've worked on in that time uh victoria i believe you worked on a project that involved a shift to digital first publishing that involved working with the editorial team and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience, particularly from the perspective of changing the internal culture in a well-established company. Sure. Um, yes. Essentially, uh, new technology doesn't come for free wherever you introduce it. Um, it always involves changing the way that you work in order to take advantage of it. And our editorial department is one that's full of incredibly smart people who are under pressure every day to get the news out. So asking them to take time out to take part in a design studio or do some user experience testing, that's really tough. So it means that any change, any new technology, it's going to take some time uh, and, and working carefully with them. So if I think specifically about them trying to get them to think digital, digital first, that meant thinking about the composition of their articles a lot more. So the first tool that we built for them was a chart making tool which would make it possible for non-specialists to make simple data charts that would go in their articles at the time they write them, rather than following a, a really complex and time-consuming workflow through other teams, which traditionally would mean that they would end up following later after the article was done. So this, was a, this is quite a big change for them. It sounds great, um, but it, it meant that those specialist teams um, meant that they needed to trust regular journalists to get their data right and present it accurately in their charts. So, uh, yes, yeah, so print is very risk averse because um, once, you've, once the newspaper has gone out to print, it's gone. There's no bringing that back. You can't fix something. You can't augment it or change it. And so um, there's perhaps some uh, fairly traditional thinking um, required for that. Whereas if you're writing for the web, it's a bit like software that you produce more quickly. It should feel more liberating but it takes time for, for people's mindsets to adjust to that and, and, and to let go a little bit. And particularly where we are still having to produce content for the newspaper. So we still need that mix of mindsets. So it just makes that change. It makes that change difficult for them. So they are changing and, and they're moving forwards, but um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a conscious thing that takes some time and, and we need to help them. It's really interesting uh, as well, just given the particular organization that, uh, that, that you work for. Um, I remember in my, investment banking training, one of the very harsh lessons we got was um, someone, uh, I was working for an Australian investment bank based in London, uh, and um, someone once, it probably wasn't the FT, it might have been another uh, news organization, but um, 
there was a big headline that leaked something that was not supposed to be understood. And it was because a guy was in a pub and he mentioned he was going to Copenhagen tomorrow. And he just happened to be the head of the airports team in the M&A division. <laughs> and there was a reporter sitting next to him who knew about that. And that's how that got out. Um, and so that, you know, it's really interesting just thinking about, you know, the, the shift to digital first thinking in a news organization where, you know, it can, it can move things. Um, uh, the idea of being able to do things quickly and retract them quickly uh, yeah. is, is, is not, is, is complicated for, is, is difficult for exactly the reasons you described that, you know, like a, the print um, medium makes you naturally more conservative, but at the same time, the ability to, you know, do switcheroos very quickly on this or that would actually also require a very different, a very different and also in its own way kind of conservative mindset, uh, I imagine as well. Um, and, and Sarah, I understand that you were for a time in the role of principal engineer on a project that involved, amongst other things, a shift to a DevOps culture at the FT. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience and what, what DevOps is. Yeah, so I was working on the content platform team and around about four or five years ago, we started building a new content platform. So publishing and delivery of content. Uh, and it was the first big microservice architecture that we'd done. And we were able to do that because the company had already started moving to a, a more DevOps mindset. We'd, we'd basically done the sort of first thing that a lot of people do with DevOps, which is to automate uh, things like server provisioning to make it much quicker. So, so DevOps is really about not having that separation between people who write code whose interest is in deploying it and people who operate code whose interest is in things not changing. So when I joined the FT, it would take, on average, we plotted this 120 days to set up a server, configure it, get everything installed and ready to put code on it. The work that had been done up to this point meant it was about 15 minutes. So that's a massive improvement and it meant we could build microservices. Microservices are great because you, you have very localized changes. You can release code very often. It's very, it's, it, you're releasing changes in one place. So um, small changes, frequently released, much less likely to fail. But they're much more complicated to operate. And ultimately, when you build a microservice architecture, you kind of have to run it yourself. The team that's, that's delivering it needs to be heavily involved in all the decisions about how it's how it's run, so that's that's really what DevOps is around. It's is, is about it's it's basically you build it, you run it, you're doing everything. You're not just writing code and giving it to someone else to package up and deploy. And um, what are what are microservices, and how does the use of microservices differ from past practices? So with a microservice, uh, rather than having one big application. Um, you have lots of services deployed separately and they communicate normally over something like HTTP. So the calls going over the, they're going over the network rather than between processes. And that means that there's a chance, there's more of a chance that that, that kind of communication will fail. But you have very clear boundaries. There's, they're often uh, API based. So you might have a microservice. The, the idea is a microservice should uh, have one area of responsibility. So you may have a microservice that is responsible for order data and everything that needs access to orders has to go in through the API and get it that way. Not, there's no sort of shared database and it, it means that everything's very encapsulated and you're able to make quite small changes and know that they're not going to have an impact. So 
generally speaking, when you're doing microservices, you can do you can vastly increase the number of releases you do. So we went from 12 releases a year to probably 2,000, 3,000 releases a year for content publishing and delivery. And that means that you can basically try things out much more frequently. You can experiment because you're able to release code, look at how the impact it's have, release new code, and, and you know that it's very separate. And just for those listening who might not know, when you talk about a release, uh, you mean, um, you know, people have made a change to something on the technical side of things and then like made it live. Yes. Uh, and so you're doing this multiple times a day, presumably across all the sort of on the web, on, on, the, on the apps and things like that. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so constant change, constant small changes um, of, of code, configuration, things like that, all done in an automated fashion so that you know that it goes through exactly the same steps every single time and it's easy to reverse. And I guess this, this next question would be for both of you. So um, uh, you're providing the tools for journalists to do the things that they do. Uh, do they f- do, I mean, I don't know how closely either of you would work with, with journalists uh, themselves or, or editors, but I imagine there must be a little bit of a, um, is there a feeling on the side of the people, you know, sort of producing the content that things are, changing too rapidly sometimes or is everybody kind of on board with it and enjoying the the sort of high speed process mm-hmm. you don't have to answer that if you don't want to well no i'm just thinking uh, <laughs> i so i think there was um so from my point of view and this is for a few years ago because i don't really work directly with editors and journalists anymore my current role is much more focused on developers but um there was a there was a point where editors realized that it was that the, that all of the changes we made meant that they could suggest something and they had much more chance of it happening quickly but there was a kind of flip side which was um we might put some a change out and it might break something but we'd fix it quickly so i think there was they basically there was more of an acceptance that of of some level of risk around moving relatively fast and quickly fixing stuff. Now, obviously there are some things we're much more careful about, but if we're changing the layout on the website, we'll probably release it. And if someone says, well, that doesn't look quite right, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to what it was like before. Yeah, I'm trying to think whether I'm, I'm hearing that uh, there's any resistance to change. There's re- when we're changing the tools that they use, mm-hmm. um, that can be challenging. It, it, it comes back to they're very busy, they're very under pressure, um, and anything different that we give them means that there's something that they're used to doing that they can't do, and they have to somehow learn this new thing. And they've got this deadline, this article they need to get out today, <laughs> or some, or you'll book a meeting with them, but some other person that they need to speak to about a news item that's just appeared has, has uh, interrupts their day. So. So change is just difficult. Um, I, I don't think I hear an awful lot of resistance that change is happening too fast. It's just that we have to respect that. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, I hadn't. I, I confess I hadn't really quite thought about it that way before. But you know, the in such a competitive and you know um, uh, high-paced environment where you've got deadlines and the news is moving, I can imagine having a technology underneath you that's that's. Uh, allowing you to do things quickly is great, but having one that's changing a lot also means that it it can actually slow, even though it's what the change that's been made is meant to speed you up, it slows you down in the moment when you have to learn it. Uh, And I imagine that's just a sort of inherent tension in 
in, uh, in the job now. Um, moving on to uh, the subject of, uh, of your book, Victoria, Internal Tech Conferences. Um, I believe both, both you and Sarah have played a role in organizing internal conferences and meetups uh, at the FT. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this culture developed there uh, in your time. Yes, and Sarah was heavily involved actually in, in the creation of the first internal tech conference and the, uh, the origin of it. Um, I think, weren't you, Sarah, you were in those early conversations that, that, that triggered it. Yes. So um, it actually came out of um, a bunch of us going to a conference in London and realizing the first thing was that, that we were listening to people who were talking about things that we'd already done. So over the space of three or four years, we'd gone from going to conferences and thinking that's amazing. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if we could do it to thinking actually we're, we're, we're at the same level as the people that are talking. So that was, that was an interesting realization. And, and actually we also realized that we benefited as, so much from just talking to each other. We were from different departments at the FT. We were talking in between the, the talks and realized that we had a lot to learn from each other. And so a couple of us that had been in that conference talked to our CTO and said, you know, we should, we should do something so that we share like how good we are at certain of these things. And also so that different parts of the organization know what the other parts are, are doing. And, um, and he said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then phoned me up and said, oh, I've booked, um, I've booked a room for it in three weeks' time. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 there is no way that that is going to happen. We need to actually plan it. We need to, we need to spend some time and get that, that going. At which point, pretty much immediately, Victoria um, came to mind and, and Victoria was, was totally involved um, from basically week, week one of organizing this. And um, uh, a lot of people need to be, uh, it, it sounds like you, you, you know, the sort of uh, things got moving quickly, but uh, often it can take some convincing uh, in some organizations at, at all levels to get people to want to participate. So, you know, a sort of um, an executive with a lot of pressure to deliver something might be like, why should I have all my, my team take a day off uh, to talk to each other? And then people on the team themselves might be like, I want to get this done why should I take a day off to talk to, to talk to other people in my own company? Um, but of course there are obviously very, you know, strong benefits to doing this kind of thing. And I was wondering if you could talk, you know, maybe to a, a skeptic about what the benefits are of taking the time out and taking, you know, devoting the resources to putting on an internal tech conference at a big organization. Sure. Um, and one of the main, well, there, there, there's the explicit goal and the, and the implicit goal, I suppose. The explicit one is, is about learning. Um, sending people out to courses and conferences, it's, it's not just expensive, but it doesn't scale. Um, and it's also very passive learning. Um, so a bit like what we were saying about universities, but not quite the same. These, these courses, which tend to often be quite specific in what they're teaching, um, and not necessarily massively contextual to, to those people for what they're doing right here, right now. Whereas inside your organization, people are learning all the time. Um, there are pockets of expertise arising all over the place. But in our agile world, where everyone's in these teams that are all self-sustaining, but sometimes that knowledge is, is quite in, in those pockets. Um, and so a, an organization like this, a, a conference, taking people out of that, 
it gives people the opportunity to discover those bright sparks that surround them in those other teams and and they connect with that in the context of their own workplace so it makes it much more experiential and and, and more sticky um, and also just simply scaled in a, in, in a way that would cost a fortune if you were sending people out somewhere else the implicit um, goals that you might see the implicit benefits are, are really the the connections that people build at these things so again related to uh, change technology is changing all the time business is changing all the time um, and all that constant change means that there are lots of opportunities for people to collide and, and, and disagree with each other potentially um, as differences emerge so enabling your employees to connect at a time which is is completely um, independent of that, a, a friendlier um, environment that's not challenging, um, it's going to significantly boost their chances of working well when a problem brings them together. So those connections are, are, are crucial and they, they, don't they often don't happen by accident. So creating those moments um, in a learning context can be massively powerful. Um, my next question is, uh about about your book as well. Um, so in addition to the sort of high business and technology theory um, uh, reasons for doing internal tech conferences, your book is full of practical advice as well. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk to people who are, you know, considering uh, running these, uh, these complex events. Uh, what are some of the things that come to mind that can typically go wrong, let's say the first time you're, you're trying to pull one of these internal tech conferences off? Um. So, well, I, I guess the, the first thing to be really on top of is, is the tech. So um, it's hugely important. People have a, a habit of not having the right adapters for their laptops or having their slides in the, in the wrong format um, in terms of the, the, the aspect ratio or something like that. So just having a, a good selection of adapters, communicating early what those constraints are and ideally testing their presentations. Um, so getting ahead of those needs. Um, Related to that, I suppose, is the tendency for remote connections to fail. So it's a good chance that you may have some remote attendees that you're trying to cater for. So look after them by making sure that speakers actually talk into the microphone, um, having someone on the ground that they can connect to and make sure that sessions are recorded so that if live streaming fails, they have the content available later if something does go wrong there. And then, of course, the, the success of the day, um, it relies on the speakers themselves. So um, a, a talk going wrong is, is, is clearly something you want to try and avoid as much as possible. So if people need coaching, make it available to them. Um, we've got a, a speaker's guild here who, who, who do a lot of really great work there. So that's a really good support network to have and have a backup on the day for in case one of your speakers does drop out. So anticipating things like that. Um, there's lots of, there are lots of other things in the book that uh, clearly go into this in more detail. That's really interesting about the backup. So is this someone, who, is this one, per, I mean, I'm really curious about the detail that is this one person mm -hmm. who is around all day in case someone doesn't show or is it um, a person per session? I, it would probably be one uh, person for the whole day. I think if you were to try and double up all of the sessions, that would get quite Mm -hmm. uh, quite arduous and a lot of people preparing sessions that they ultimately wouldn't deliver so it's just having one or two emergency speakers who are ready to step in if if something goes wrong is is, is probably it's probably a good idea it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the distinction maybe between uh, active and passive kind of learning and one of the it mm -hmm. seems to me one of the great benefits of having an internal tech conference is that 
every one of the speakers is someone from your organization and they've had to uh, put together a talk and, 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 and think, I mean, often people say the, the best way to learn is to have to teach something. Uh, and I imagine this is an experience that, that people sometimes might be a bit, a little bit trepidatious to enter, but, but once they do, they probably feel quite empowered by it. Oh, definitely. It's one of the advantages if they can, if they can be brave and realize that there's, there's often something that uh, it maybe interests us, but we haven't quite found the time to look into it a bit more. Um, if you're going to stand up and talk about something, you, you, you do want to make sure you know what you're talking about. So, um, so it can be encouraging. And uh, as part of an internal thing, then they can be given the support by the management. We would like people to get up and, and talk about a thing. So if, the, if that requires them to spend a bit of time learning a bit more about it, then we can support them in that and, and explicitly give them a bit of time. And so it's an, it's an exciting um, learning opportunity for them on something that's outside perhaps of what they're doing every day. So, and, and then there's the learning they get from having given a, a talk in public as well. That's a, a really good growth and learning opportunity for them too. And what kind of space should one use um, for an event like this, let's say, let's say if you're going to have, I mean, I actually don't know what, what the size of the events you, you've, you've, you've both put on would be, but you know, if there were say a hundred attendees, what kind of space should you try and find? Um, it, I guess it depends on the, on how you're structuring the day. Because you might be structuring the day uh, where you've just got a series of big talks that you expect most people to try and go to, or you might be structuring the day where you've maybe where you've got streams and you might have a several smaller talks scattered across different rooms. So it, it depends on how you structure it really, and and whether your focus is um, is more single track or, or or whether you have the option and more more content and and more rooms and spaces available to you. So previously we've all, we've had one big conference room and so we've had a single stream of of, of talks and uh, panel discussions that have been given from the front of the room with people consuming and, and asking questions from the floor this year in our new building we've got actually got um, a greater variety of spaces available to us so we're we're looking forward to this year and getting quite excited about the idea of having uh, parallel streams of smaller workshops and um, open space discussions going alongside what might be a main a main thread of of, of main topics. So we, we've got more flexibility this year. Um, can, I, can I just say something yeah. on this? I yeah. think that, I think that you can. Um, I think that that it depends what you've got. I think you can set up an internal conference with whatever size of space that you have, and you'll change what you're doing to fit that. What I think is important probably the first time you do it is not to try and bite off too much. So, you know, this year we're excited and thinking, oh, we'll run multiple streams. But we were a bit more, we were cautious the first year to say, what do we think we can manage? Um, so I think it's now we're just, you know, we feel like we understand how to do it so we can expand it and do more. So I think it's like work with what you've got. Don't try and do too much to start with if it's going to be overwhelming and then develop from there. One of the uh, really interesting details uh, about running a successful, I mean, I guess probably any kind of conference, uh, this has actually come up before on this podcast, but uh, I believe that one should not underestimate the importance of providing quality food. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, yes. After our first event, the, the, the biggest uh, negative feedback we got was about the food. Um, we just serve pizza and not enough of it. And at the time we thought, oh, that's great. Everything else must have been awesome if that's all they had to complain about. 
But truthfully, I think that they probably spent a fair amount of energy mumbling and, and grumbling about it and maybe going to get snacks rather than enjoying it and, uh, and, and focusing on the event. And so later, in other events where we provided better food, you see people actually relaxing, enjoying the food and actually getting much more out of those uh, those opportunities for those conversations and connections because they're relaxed and enjoying and being positive and it, it, it's it's actually makes a big difference yes and I imagine and imagine feeling respected as well yes it's a big part absolutely of you know it's, it's also fun. true it's also true of external conferences if, if you you have to do good food otherwise people will comment about it <laughs> I imagine, I imagine people will comment about something anyway, but um, that, that actually leads me to my next question, which is that I believe following up is actually a very important principle that, that you have with respect to these conferences, that it's important to follow up with uh, both the volunteers and the, the people who've attended. Uh, and how do, how do you go about doing that? And what are you looking for in, in the follow-up process? Yeah, uh, well, there's, there's different kinds of follow-up. So um, getting feedback, um, and that can be just, you know, via a form or just by having some conversations with people. But doing some legwork and having the conversations is really key. But you want to find out from attendees, you know, how the event went for them and how you could make it better. Um, but also from the speakers, you know, how was it for them and, and, and how could you better support them in the future uh, with other speakers? And another really good question to ask is the other kind of follow up is to follow up on the benefits and outcomes that you are seeking to get from it. So another really good question to ask people is just, you know, what do they intend to do differently as a result? Um, and then just uh, as people who have been involved in running it, are invested in it, or as senior management, being ready to notice and follow up on and gently nudge any spin-off activities that we might see a, a hint of that might be occurring just to encourage those things to happen. And I think Sarah, you've done that before, haven't you, with events that we've had? Yeah. Yeah. It's basically thinking, oh yes, I noticed someone talking about this. I'm going to follow up and try and make it, make it actually, make sure it actually happens. And is this, um, just, just to get into the, the weeds of it, is it, is this, you know, emailing people, is this walking up to people and tapping them on the shoulder? Is it web forms or, or something like that? Or all, all, all of the above? Uh, everything. Okay. I mean, I think you can, you can get, there's a, there's a lot of value in structured feedback of sending a form um, because it gives you the, it gives you information in a structured way. So you can say, oh, well, you know, this, this is the, this is what the, these are the most popular sessions. Um, but you also want to just talk to people um, as you're going around your, your day job and sort of say, well, how was it? And because you, you will get people saying stuff that they may not have bothered filling in a form for, you know, people fill in forms when they're really happy or, or not happy, um, or if they have a strong sense of um, a public spiritedness, but the rest you're missing unless you go and talk to people. And in your, in your experience with this, is there someone that you need to report to afterwards to say it was a great success and here's, here's my proof? Or is, is the sort of culture sort of fluid and trusting enough, you, would you say, that, you know, it's, it, there's just sort of social proof that everything was worthwhile i think the people that we need to that we need to have think whether this was good are actually there so uh, they're making their own judgment so you know our our cto our cio they they are they're there at the conference so they're going to they're going to see how it goes themselves and i think that's actually really important 
um, to have that like level because if if your CTO and your CIO are there and they're telling people about it, it's much easier for people to take time out of their normal day job and come to um, the conference. I don't know, Victoria. Do you think we had to do any any sort of separate um, feedback? No, I don't, I don't think we did. I think we. Um, I think it's important to catch up with them afterwards because if you're up before running it, being clear with them about what it is that they're hoping will achieve out of it, because then and then your conversation with them afterwards can reflect on that. And you know, so you were hoping to get to see this. Did you see this? Um, and and also those follow up activities we were talking about nudging. You know, you can help them spot some of those things that might need nudging, and maybe they can nudge them too. And if you see some of these things that are changing, these light bulb moments, or whether maybe you've seen something in a project that's done differently because someone's learnt from the event, if you see those happening and encourage those happening, then they act as really good um, ammunition and motivators for for running the next event. And it's just it's 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 useful evidence to, to build as well. Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you very much to both of you for, for sharing all these details about your own, about your own careers and about internal tech conferences and uh, the work that you've done. Um, the last question I have uh, is the last question I usually ask on this podcast. And I guess in this case, it's specifically for Victoria because she's uh, published a book on LeanPub. Uh, the question is, if there was one thing we could, one feature we could build for you or one bug we could fix for you, uh, what would you ask us to do? Um, that one's quite easy. I would love more data. <laughs> I'd like more data about uh, conversion rates. So I, I put a, a free sample of my book uh, on, on LeanPub and I don't know whether I'm putting too much on there or too little, if I'm putting the right content, I can't experiment. So if I could have data that shows how many people read that and then actually buy it versus read it and then just go, well, that's all I needed. Thank you. Um, I, 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 I can't, to, I can't play around. So I would love to have those, that conversion data so that I could experiment. Okay. Well, thanks very much for that very direct and clear <laughs> <laughs> request. Uh, those are the, those are the, those are the best kind. Um, yeah, we've had, we've had some requests for more data before uh, it, you know, it takes, it takes various forms, but definitely um, getting feedback, getting feedback on the uh, success or failure of the efforts that you put in to, drive sales or attention is something that can be really motivating. Um, and so that's definitely something that we intend to improve in the future. Um, conversions from reading the sample to buying the book are something that we could definitely do quite a bit more work on. I mean, you, know, you can imagine like a sort of link in the back of the sample to go buy the book now is something that we could maybe even, even track. Um, well, uh, thank you very much to both of you for taking time. It's, it's, it's the morning here, but it's the evening where you are. Uh, so thanks very much for taking the time out of your, your evenings uh, to be on the podcast. And thank you, Victoria, for uh, choosing LeanPub as a platform for your book. Thank you. Thank you thank for publishing. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please visit our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.